Good day, everyone. I'm your host, James Hicks from Hicks New Media. Welcome to Perspectives and Focus, where, you know, we highlight the people, industries, and ideas that are making positive strides within society today. Today's guest, no stranger to the stream, to the show, Mr. Gus Pazanate from Basile Law Firm. Today, we are going to continue our exclusive content focused on the legal rights of both individual and corporate investors. In this series, we've talked about toxic lending practices. We've talked about courses of action for remediation as it relates to debt restructuring. And today, we're going to talk about RICO, the Racketeer Influenced and Corruption Organizations Act. As noted, this is a premium session that we're making available to everyone. And we're going to do our very best to ensure that we bring you high value content and that you spend your most valuable asset with us, uh, that being your time. However, only channel subscribers will have their comment viewable by the panel and only channel members will get their comments pushed to the stream for discussion. Listen, I'm here to moderate, facilitate and instigate. You guys didn't come to see me. You came to see the man behind the scenes right now. So with that, let's get it in. Ladies and gentlemen, I should call him doctor, Dr. Gus Pazanante. When, when did you get your doctorate yet? <laughs> the, uh, it's, all, it's, it's coming soon. It's coming soon. No. Yeah. Right. Gus, how you no. doing, sir? I'm good, James. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me again. Always, awesome. Uh, Listen, no, this, this is good stuff, right? And I appreciate you and I appreciate your team taking the time and I appreciate the, the community for, for raising these, these issues and these comments so, so that we can have this content, this discussion with the folks that are either involved directly and or, or, or indirectly with this. But I'd, I'd be remiss if I just made the assumption that everyone knew who you are and, and the organization that you represent. So if you could give that 30 second kind of elevator pitch of who Gus Pasanate is. Yeah, of course, of course. So uh, I'm an attorney at the Basile Law Firm. We, uh, we focus on a lot of corporate finance litigation and what we do, we've, uh, we've always represented issuers, um, going against hedge funds or defending them against hedge funds or private equity firms or venture capital firms, whoever, uh, whatever the entity may be that's making these kind of investments. Um, and what we do is we attack the vehicle, the investment vehicle, and whether it be um, based on usury or um, unregistered dealer activity or, uh, or any, any of the above. Um, so we've uh, kind of started with that unregistered dealer aspect and then with, uh, you know, violations of the Exchange Act. Um, and kind of the further we moved along, we've kind of gone with the flow, gone with the wind. Um, we had a couple of big decisions like the eight base decision, which kind of like influenced a lot of, uh, a lot of our transitions and, and how kind of is, is why we, why we're, why we are where we are today. And um, so that's a, it's a brief overview of kind of, of what we do. Awesome. Awesome. Let, let's let's go ahead and get into kind of the, the context of, of, of today's story. Right. And and it really we're, we're going to fly to thirty five thousand foot level and, and, and maybe dive into some some more specifics. But tell folks again, the 
legal definition and then really from your seat as opposed to from my seat what what rico is and, and if you can explain what why why it's resonating with us and why we need to have this discussion yeah yeah so i remember your reaction to uh you know <laughs> when we were talking about this like, a month ago two months ago when we were yeah. you know kind of figure out what the next thing was and i said rico and your kind of eyes popped out of your head you're like what are you with the mob you know <laughs> and that's uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, obvious. Again, that, that, that's the common person, right? Again, that's the third person looking yeah. in. When we hear about it, we see it on the news. We see it on this TV back here is locked on CNBC. And if I hear Rico, I'm like, okay, what's going on? So yeah. let, let's get yeah, the yeah. experts yeah. to talk about people it. People are going to turn their heads. It's it's uh, it's one of those things that people know about but don't really know about. You know, they know it exists. They know it's bad. And um, it's really cool that we've kind of transitioned into this. It's a really interesting area of the law, um, especially with all the history behind it. Um, I'm sure that when Congress enacted this, they didn't anticipate this would be kind of the, uh, the way it might be used, but it, um, it kind of covers a lot of that, not a lot of it, it covers, you know, what, what these people do. And it's, it's kind of interesting to, uh, to see that this is, uh, this is kind of the direction that we're going and, um, that we're definitely have been seeing success, uh, doing this. Um, let, let, me, let me preface this, right? Because when you say the direction that we're going now, I, I know that your particular firm, or are you speaking kind of in, in whole from a generalistic perspective of, of where you're seeing more litigation conversations happening? Or are you just talking specifically about the Basile law firm? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Yeah. So um, by, by we, I mean, us as a firm, okay. really. Um, it doesn't mean that clients aren't or, you know, issuers or companies aren't now looking towards this kind of remedy because of the way we kind of transitioned our practice um, and what we'll do is basically when when a client does come to us we we have obviously you know an intake procedure that we kind of analyze their position what might work might, what might not work and especially because of now or, or uh, some of the things going on in the Southern District, we've, which we've talked about uh, in the past. Um, a lot of courts have been, or have, or not a lot, it's really just the Southern District of New York that, that really wasn't kind of jumping on to that uh, dealer argument um, for some reason. It was, uh, we, th we think it'll eventually get cleared up, but it, uh, it was kind of, we were running into problems. So instead of leading our clients in that direction, we started to, think about other ways that we could kind of assert claims on their behalf and, and kind of have their, their, uh, you know, correct the harm that, that happened to them. So we obviously have the eight base decision that happened in, uh, in last, uh, October and, uh, last fall, and that kind of opened the door. Mm. Okay. So now, you know, the, courts in New York are finally understanding that this conversion option is, is going to be, has to be considered interest. It's consideration. And, uh, and once you do the calculations, it, I mean, you can get interest rates into the triple digits pretty, pretty easily. Um, and you look at the returns on some of these vehicles from these funds, it's not uncommon. And we've spoken about this before because it's, because we're still talking about the same vehicle. We're still talking about these convertible notes. Um, and we've talked about it in so many aspects now. We've talked about it in the unregistered dealer aspect. We've talked about it in the usury aspect. And now RICO is kind of a new aspect, but it's, like I said, it's the same vehicle. It's the same kind of agreement. Um, and usury is, is, a, is still a prong of this, of this RICO claim, of this RICO kind of 
uh, theory that we're kind of, we're developing and we're pushing on behalf of our clients. So it is, uh, it's, it's not so unrelated. I think a lot of people who have, who have watched and listened to us talk before, aren't going to be completely, um, in the dark. They're going to understand the nature of, of kind of what goes on. It's really just a different way of kind of asserting, um, our clients' rights, um, the same kind of agreements. And, and we're just kind of, you know, doing what, what people do, you know, they're adjusting and, uh, we're adjusting and we're, gotcha. we're making it work. Gotcha. And, and when you say your clients, again, are they more the individual investor or are they more the corporate entity? Are they more the C-suite, you know, those types of folks, where, where does that delineation of who walks into your law firm that, that you represent, uh, where, where is that? Is it again, the, uh, individual investor versus the, uh, the corporate investor kind of thing? Yeah. Good question. So, so we're still, um, representing mostly issuers. So, so companies, so it, mm. it'll be a company that gets into these agreements. It's, it's, it's truthfully not much has changed. What's changed is what's going on our papers, right? The same, same people are come, coming in okay. um, asking us for help. And basically just the way that we're helping them is a little, is changing a little bit depending on their position. So it's still going to be a company that comes in and says, Hey, we, got into this note with XYZ fund. Um, it was for a hundred thousand dollars. Um, they ended up acquiring 2 billion shares because of the conversion discounts that they had in the stock. We don't know what to do. We can't correct it. Our cap tables destroyed. Um, we need to get out of it. You know, the only thing they know is that they need help. So then that's what we, when we come back and say, here's how we can help. Um, and Rico's especially, it's especially, um, I don't want to say dangerous, but it's, it's lethal. It's, it's, it's pretty lethal because. Okay. You, see, yeah, you can't just drop that out there and you know, I'm a pick on that, right? So we, we, we got to dive a little bit deeper. Talk, talk a little bit about why you use those particular adjectives, right? Lethal and deadly. Come on now. We, we got to yeah. yeah. inquiring so, minds here want to know, man. So I'll compare it to some of the unregistered dealer litigation. And if, if some of our audience isn't aware of that, they can, they can rewatch some of uh, our old shows because mm -hmm. we spoke about that in, at, in depth. But basically, the remedy for, for an unregistered dealer kind of claim, a claim under 29B of the Exchange Act, you're just looking for rescission. So we're just, only thing that we're going to be doing is putting the parties back where they were before the agreement was executed, right? So let's say, for example, it's a $100,000 loan and the lender ended up acquiring a million dollars worth of stock. So in a broker dealer case, right, under a claim under 29B, what would happen is that the, the lender would get the $100,000 back and then the borrower or the company would either get the stock back or hopefully a judgment for the value of the stock that they acquired that the lender mm -hmm. acquired. Here, that difference. So that's a $900,000 difference, right? So we're putting everyone back at the same position. It doesn't mean that the company gets to keep everything that was given to them. Um, of course there was value conveyed to the company, even though they did get, they were harmed in, in the way that the agreement was drafted and the provisions all went against them. It doesn't mean, you know, they still did receive value. So you're kind of, does that make sense? You're kind of just putting people yeah. Back, yeah. back on their sides. The difference and the, uh, the interesting part about Rico is that, so that the harm is trebled. So whatever judgment you'd get 
for a RICO violation, for a RICO claim, if you successfully say a RICO claim, the, the, the judgment's tripled. It, they say trebled, but it's it's three times whatever the judgment would be. So let's say it's a $900,000 overcharge, and that trebled is now going to be a $2.7 million judgment. You also get the... the um, the party would also get uh, fees as well, included in the judgment. Mm, okay. So now we're talking instead of, you know, it's it, our broker dealer claims obviously had teeth depending on what court we're in. And now with our real claims, the teeth are just a lot sharper, right? So now instead of potentially facing a judgment for just whatever they took, it's beyond what they took now, right? These lenders, it's well beyond what they took. It's three times what they took plus the fees of uh plus the attorney's fees okay because i because I, I do i do know from you know the penalties from a perspective of, of the rico statute and, and i what is it 20 years or twenty five thousand dollars in fines but you're, you're saying that that's just kind of the start there there are other probably yeah. civil yeah. litigations and things that are surrounding right. this this entire process that the person the individual the corporation the c-suite whomever that that's uh charged in this could also be right. held accountable to as well so that that uh right. again 20 years and twenty five thousand dollars is just uh, the tip of the iceberg yeah. for the most part okay let me wow. back a little bit because mm. um i might have overlooked this what or you know just kind of passed by this and didn't uh didn't explain it but so there's uh, rico is a criminal statute right it's it's um it's a crime that racketeering activity that's outlined in that in the in section 1962 is is a crime but there is a civil aspect to it and it does allow people to assert these claims civilly and and recover money from it right so those you know years of jail time and things that's that's the criminal aspect of it so that's obviously not not what we would touch that would be up to the government to go and prosecute um but we 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 hang our hats on the civil remedies that are available to private litigants because of the harm that was caused by of by these rico acts basically does that make sense yeah yeah okay so so let's let's talk about the what you can talk about the the, the judgment recent judgment that that uh your your firm had with as it adar adar bays yeah Okay. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to talk about that and then kind of go into some other conversation pieces because I, I know there's that white paper that was written by some of your colleagues and I'll bring that on screen and provide a link to that as well. But you know, the, the title of that was how Rico, how Rico and the Adar Bay's decision can help micro caps recover losses caused by toxic lending. Talk a little bit about the impact of that ruling and then why the, you felt that the need to white, write that white paper. Yeah, absolutely. So, what happened with Adar Bays is, like I, I was uh, explaining a little bit before, but it, it finally made these agreements, or not made the agreements, it, it just properly interpreted the statute because we always took the position that these were usurious. And we knew eventually that once we can get a court to understand and actually consider all of the things that they need to consider, because these, these are obviously extremely complicated agreements. It's very, very difficult to convey this information to judges, you'd be surprised some of the things that I've had to explain in court. Um, that I mean, I'm not going to say what I had to, what I've had to explain in court, and I don't want to like you know <laughs> talk badly about some some judges, but it's it's very difficult to to convey this information to 
even even judges, even people that ha should have a lot of knowledge on the law and uh, and how these things work. So it took a really long time because a lot of courts, I think it was over a dozen courts, just shot us shot us down, shot down. And Mark most and Mark took a lot of these cases. He kept on going. Like Mark wow. doesn't give up. You know, he never he never stopped. So. Um, but he, but it's because he knew it, it makes it, it made sense. It was just very difficult to to get the uh, the right things in front of the right people to, for them to consider it. So the the usury statute, usury in New York, the laws in New York, any kind of consideration that is given to a lender is considered interest. Okay. Consideration I, by consideration, I mean money or goods or stock, which could be stock, or it could be an origination discount. Um, some kind of withholding from the lender. So the, like I was trying to say before, it's, it's not like anything, the law didn't change. The law has always been the law. It was just that we finally got courts to understand that this is value. This is consideration. And this is also just like how it's always been since the 1800s. This is also consideration that needs to be considered in a usury calculation. Once the court finally opened the door, agreed, this is the Court of Appeals, this is the highest court that overturns every single of these district court decisions that went the wrong way. Once they figured out, once they decided um, that, hey, this is interest and it is something that needs to be considered, you know, th this conversion option needs to be considered interest and then set some kind of set some guidelines for for litigants to. Um, understand how to prove the value of these conversion options, such as valuation formulas and things like that. It it opens the door. Now we could, now now we know that we could claim that these, um, or now we know that courts will agree with us because we've always believed it that these agreements could be usurious, which is great. The one issue that corporations run into in New York is that you can't affirmatively state. A claim for usury as a corporation, you'd only do it as an individual. Mm, okay. So, a corporation it suffers as a victim of a usurious agreement. They have no rights. They can. They have no rights to assert it as a. Uh, hang on one second. They have no rights to um, assert it affirmatively. They can only use it as an affirmative defense. So, essentially, what they would have to do is that they would have to default on the loan, get sued by the lender, and then raise it as an affirmative defense. Wow. What RICO offers, which is unique to, well, not unique, it's different from usury, is that they allow victims of usury to assert it affirmatively on, under RICO because RICO has a prong that, um, that considers unlawful debt collection, which is collecting usurious interest, collecting usurious debt. Unlawful debt collection is actually an, an, a, a RICO act. So it's a viol you, you violate RICO by collecting unlawful debt. And there's definitions and obviously kind of gets into the weeds with things like that, which I can get into if we, uh, if we have time. But so once the court kind of opened the door for that, and then we saw the window for RICO to kind of coincide with this net new interpretation of the usury laws, we kind of put them together and then started trying to, you know, assert those claims for our clients. Gotcha. Okay. And, and I, I appreciate you actually speaking the differentiation of what your firm does versus maybe someone down the street. I mean, I mean there's value in that of knowing uh, the Pazanates and, and, and the Basiles and, you know, everyone that that's what you're going to get when you when you acquire the firm. So uh, 
appreciate everyone coming also in with the questions. I knew my man, like King of Prussia, would come in with something. Appreciate you all for being here since he asked first. And listen, this, let's not assume, right? Again, let, let's start over. Let's backtrack a little bit, take a pause. Define Rico for someone who has no insight to any financial tech, to any investing, to, to anything. They're, they're a fifth grader, right? What, what is the, uh, the Racketeering Act? Yeah. So, uh, so Rico, I, I think it was, uh, I think it came about in the seventies. The main purpose, mm-hmm. like we were talking about before was for the mob. So what was going on is obviously these families would hire people to do their work for them. And they had a lot of trouble court. Well, uh, not really courts, but, um, prosecutors and, and, uh, you know, law enforcement agencies had a lot of trouble getting to the, you know, the person at the top. And it's because the person at the top wasn't really pulling the trigger. The person at the top wasn't going and collecting that money. The person at the top wasn't doing the crime, you know, quote unquote, right? But the enterprise was was kind of doing it. So title of it, Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act is, is basically it created an avenue for prosecutors to go after a family or an enterprise. They call it a criminal enterprise and a criminal organization go after organized crime groups and go after people, even if they're not the person necessarily, let's say, pulling the trigger. Um, and they tried to make the statute obviously very broad for these purposes because they didn't want anything to slip through the cracks. If you go on to the RICO, stat, uh, the RICO statute, um, racketeering activity is defined as, it has a list of, I can't even count, it's probably you know, a hundred different kinds of, oh, is that it? Yeah. There you, oh, go. Man. yeah. You, you know, we, we do this together, brother. You, we know. <laughs> all different and this kinds. is not all of them. These are kind of the, the most egregious ones. Uh, right. and, yeah. and, you know, I put this up there and you got to remember that the words that we use, man, you, you keep saying, pull the trigger. And, um, <laughs> number two on this list is, is, is murder. <laughs> so we, we got to watch the words that we use as, as we describe some of these, these, uh, <laughs> Uh, crimes that are uh, out here for, for Rico, but yeah, um, go ahead on, man. And I'll, I'll heat this up. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's super helpful. So obviously, you know, it's a list of, of things that, that these enterprises would engage in. And this is the way that they were, able, they were able to get the enterprise, right. The way that the, uh, the feds were able to get the enterprise. So in addition to this, they also allowed the people that were victims of some of these crimes or some of these wrongdoings to go and recover what, you know, whatever harm that they suffered, because obviously this did involve a lot of extortion, um, loan sharking and things like that. So people's property and businesses were harmed a lot and they wanted to also be able to allow civil, you know, people like us to be, to, you know, kind of right their wrongs and and figure and, and kind of recover uh, recover anything that, you know, they might've lost. Um, and that's the civil aspect that we were talking about before that kind of, uh, that we're, that we're, uh, we're doing now and, and trying to, uh, kind of lead the way with. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate that. And I will actually put links to that list of, of crimes that, uh, are part of the RICO act and then kind of that definition as well from the department of justice website. Uh, Mr. Brian Walton is chiming in as well. Appreciate you for being here, sir. He says, does it help if your client wins the civil suit? Is discovery handed over to criminal prosecutors? 
That's a good question. Um, it wouldn't be, I mean, I'm not a criminal attorney, so I don't want to talk too much about kind of how the prosecution works exactly. Um, but I wouldn't find it out of, you know, impossible or completely um, unfathomable for, let's say, an a, you know, a U.S. attorney to contact us and seek some of the documents that we did get in discovery. Mm. Um, but it, it's probably not, you know, a lot of times when um, civil litigants go through discovery, they, they do execute things, uh, something called a protective order. So what we do with what we receive is, is generally pretty protected and, and it's, we generally aren't going to share that with anyone. Um, but I mean, who knows? I like, uh, this is kind of something that if there is, if it, you know, it comes down to, I think, uh, you know, government resource thing, if this is something that they want to prosecute and they feel like they should be, you know, putting a stop to, and, uh, then they might, they might do it and they might kind of look at civil actions and see what's going on. Um, I'm not sure how common RICO is nowadays criminally. I know we were talking about James, those, yeah. uh, those writers that were kind of in for it in, uh, in Atlanta, but I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not too sure how they would, how they would react. So that's, that's interesting because you, you almost wonder if, you know, it was established back in the early seventies, there were some, there were some, some dealings that had to be, be addressed and, and now still some of the precedents of, of how to, uh, properly litigate, properly have the discussions around RICO, only specific, only a handful of law firms, and I'm just making third person outside assumptions, only a handful of law firms are actually taking on that proactively and, and moving forward and, and, and into today's time, into today's digital world, right? Again, with uh, crypto and, and Web 3.0 and NFTs and, and just the way that other financial or financial organizations are finding avenues to acquire funding and monies and things of that nature. I mean, it, it's almost like there needs to be an addendum again, written to the act for the new world order, because all of that wasn't available and around back in the seventies. We didn't have PayPal, Venmo, you know, things of that nature in terms of how you can easily move money back and forth legitimately and illegitimately. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I I totally see where you're coming Mm. from. Um, That's an interesting point, but I would say, I, I will say that, it is, there is a, a lot of, um, of fraud, like predicate violations for okay. RICO in, in the racketeering activity, you know, wire fraud, mail fraud, secure, uh, not securities fraud. It's one of the, actually the only frauds that you can't, um, that are not included in, in this, in, uh, in one of the RICO acts, um, or RICO racketeering activity. But, um, believe it or not, there is, there is a lot of fraud. So I'm, I would uh, I'd be interested to see if maybe one of those fraud predicate acts could cover potential claims under one of those kind of alternative okay. investment that you were just talking about. And gotcha. Some, you know, okay. Interesting. Right. Interesting. Let me bring up another question from from Brian as well. Here he says, "Do toxic toxic lender lenders open themselves up to criminal RICO and other criminal charges if civil RICO claims are brought? And I think we, we, we may have already addressed that, but I wanted to be cognizant and aware and bring that question up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I was saying before, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I mean, I, I do, you know, I say the government, but the government is their people. So, you know, they're aware of what's going on. They, they follow the news and, um, 
I'm sure if this is, like I said before, if this is something that that, that office has the resources to go and do, um, that it, it might be something that they follow. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think that's uh, that's kind of the way that I see it. Okay, okay. Let's get a little bit more to home. Let's let's talk again a little bit more about what, what the Basile Law Firm is doing. Quint, good to have you here. He says, is the firm also looking at exploring applying RICO outside of toxic lenders, i.e. kind of FUD findings for those operating in, in groups? That's interesting. So, um, and he puts a caveat have, and he says, you know, if you can't answer that. Yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, <laughs> we always, we're obviously always like looking to kind of push the needle and, and kind of, we're, we're always very innovative. Like, you know, there's not much that we won't try, obviously. Um, like I was saying, I would, we'd probably, uh, well, I haven't really looked into it, but, I, but now that kind of just sparked some interest and, and maybe I would, uh, I would like to kind of go through that racketeering activity list and see, <laughs> see if there was a way that you kind of, kind of, uh, maybe formulate a, maybe an enterprise for some of the conduct that's, that some of those, uh, those posters do, um, that's a good question. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I, too I, sure. I, I bet, um, Mr. Mark Brazil is, is just squirming in his seat right now, you know, wanting to say something. He's probably, he's pointing at his computer and Mr. Brazil, you know, the link, if you want to come in and, and get on, on screen with us, you are always welcome, sir. I, I just have a feeling that he is wringing his hands right now and saying, saying something. I'm, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I, I love that fact. Uh, no, I'm sure. I'm so, I'm surprised he hasn't knocked my door down yet. He's right next door. That was probably him calling. Right. That was that was probably him with with some uh, some ideas for for the conversation. Yeah. Uh, appreciate everyone with, with these commentary and, and things of that. I see a lot of activity on Twitter. Appreciate that as well. But again, you guys know you can't uh, really engage there. So come on over to YouTube so you can join into the conversation here. He's Yo, listen, <laughs> listen. I'm just I'm just listening to I'm just listening to all this stuff. And, you know, Gus is doing a great job. We can't really tell you what our plans are going forward. But as Gus said, the whole interaction with possible RICO claims dealing with FUD is interesting. But let Gus handle it. <laughs> My goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, you, you can't script that. You can't buy that. Uh, it was good to see you, sir. Uh, at the at the end of this session, I'll, I'll bring up some news because like, I, I think we're going to have another uh opportunity to, to collaborate and see each other. That was, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Um, Quint was asking another question and he was saying, has your firm had a chance to look at the FINRA charges against bank of America and what they are doing with OTC companies? Oh, I, uh, I did not get a chance to look at that. I do remember, uh, seeing some of that stuff on Twitter. I, um, how about this next time we talk, I will, uh, I'll make sure that we cover that because I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to look at it, but it is interesting. I'm sure it's i uh, I'm sure I could, I'm sure I have an opinion about it. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Brian, Brian saw the man come in, the man, the myth, the legend. Yes. And listen, we, we give, uh, kudos where they are due. It's good to have have you on, sir. Uh, Penny for your thoughts. Assuming a judgment is received from a RICO claim, what are the enforcement options available for the companies to collect on said judgment? That's an excellent question. Yeah. Um, so what you do with any, Rio judgments aren't, aren't uh, 
different than any other any any other judgment you might acquire through you know trial or default. However, you acquire judgment from a court, judgment's a judgment, and um, ways you can kind of collect on it is what you'll do is try and attach it to um, the judgment party's assets. So whether it be real estate or some other kind of asset, you're going to try and attempt slap a lien on any property. Um, obviously, you're going to look for bank accounts, brokerage accounts, especially in our case, brokerage accounts, I'm sure, are would be extremely valuable for a lot of the the uh, the parties that we go against. So we would, uh, you know, you'd go through that process. It's, uh, you know, you acquire a judgment, get a lien, and then uh, you go and collect. Awesome. Awesome. Quint, I see this question that just that you just positioned and I'm going to save that for last. I don't, I do want you to know that I, that I saw that, but that's, that's an excellent question. I'm, I'm going to let Gus kind of do that in his summary. Um, let, let's, let's talk about this, man, right? Because we, we've talked and we've addressed some questions. We've talked very high level, but again, I, I want to hone in and I want to be kind of laser focused on why, you know, the with them, the what's in it for me and not necessarily me, but what's in it for everyone. Right. And what's the problem What's the question that we're solving for the audience by having this particular session, right? What, what's, what's that value that the people that are listening, watching now live and, and, and then on the replay that they can take from this particular discussion about Rico? One, and then what can they take from this, this discussion about what your firm is doing as it relates to Rico, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, so really, so... A lot of our audience is is uh, a lot of retail shareholders. I know um, a lot of people that I interact with on Twitter are shareholders of some of my clients. So I think it is, you know, I mean, the world's kind of crazy like nowadays. How you can kind of just speak to you know the way that we have access to kind of communicate with so many people at one time. It's it's pretty impressive, and it's it's given uh, it's given a lot of people a lot of interesting opportunities and um and it's obviously you know harmful at times but but also has given people a lot of uh a lot of benefit so what i like to the reason i i kind of like to dis, like discuss this is because i i do know that there are a lot of active uh um otc companies management that it or you know a lot of management professionals that are active on twitter and they do interact with their shareholders um and of course, their shareholders do, and as they should, have a huge influence on, on what management, like what decisions management might be uh, making and, and what steps they might be taking. So what I try and emphasize when we talk is is the benefits to a company, which, which could be one of my potential clients. And hopefully that these shareholders will kind of emphasize that to their CEOs and say, you know, here are the steps I, I think that we should be making and, and kind of be able to have a voice, have a say in, in the company that they, they own. They own this company. They, ha- they should have a say in, in kind of the, the direction that they go. So um, Rico specifically, this is something that is is a no-brainer. Um, if, if you know that at one, one of the companies that you're investing in suffered from a, a convertible note and the lender converted out of the note, there is no reason that a CEO should avoid going after that lender or going after the stock that was acquired for all the damage that that the that it caused. And 
we're very we're pretty confident that this is going to be one of the best courses of action for companies for, for a lot of our clients moving forward, especially with obviously because of the success we've seen from ARBs, and uh, and not only the success we've seen from ARBs, we've uh, we've seen a lot of success for RICO claims in the Southern District as of late for um, for other uh, for other like kind of alternative financing agreements called merchant cash advances, which I think we may have touched on very very briefly at, at one point when we've spoken, but. Um, but we've been seeing a lot of success uh, for merchants based on those agreements. And I know we don't, there's no way of us knowing, you know, from the outside looking in what's going on, but when you see a lawsuit, you know, a complaint filed, motion to dismiss filed shortly after that. And then the judge, judge denies that motion to dismiss and which means that these parties are going to be able to, to go and figure out, you know, go through discovery and, and prove their claims. Um, and then the you know the the there's a very right after that there's a dismissal filed, um, you know that there was obviously considerations on both sides like hey maybe we should get rid of this now, um, and like I, like I was talking about before because Rico is so lethal it's it's almost a no brainer for a lot of these funds that that have done the wrongdoing that you know to out of it early. Um, so it's something that that a lot of not, not a lot of every single CEO that has has gotten into one of these agreements should be doing this right now. Should be going through their books right now and making sure that there are there's nothing left on the table that they can mm -hmm. go get. Shareholders should be doing the same thing. Shareholders should be going through financial statements and making sure that there's nothing left on the table. And if there is, they should be making sure that they're communicating their you know what you know their thoughts their their to management of the of the, the companies that they own shares in. Um, and another thing is, and then the reason why I'm saying it should be done quicker rather than later is because there's obviously a statute of limitations for a lot of these issues. Um, for RICO in particular, it's a, it's a four year statute of limitations. Okay. So every day that goes by, you're, you could be leaving more and more on the table as a CEO of a public company that suffered from one of these, you know, a, a, as a victim of, of one of these usurious agreements. So, that is uh that's kind of my my take on it cool i mean and, and i appreciate the uh the homework that you gave us as well that dropping that gym that be proactive even from the individual investor perspective right to ask the company these particular things right if they are uh in any way shape or form involved or could potentially be involved in some in some of these situations right again we, we can't just blindly invest in these organizations and in, in these companies just because I, you know, I invest in Starbucks because I drink there every other day, but I still need to ask those questions, right? When I go to those shareholder meetings or when I submit yeah. my, my proxy, whatever the case may be, again, that that's that homework. And that's that gem that a lot of folks, hopefully let's not assume, right? Let, let's, let's be proactive where we put our hard earned daughter dollars uh, within these organizations. Um, Mr. Watts, Walton, I apologize. Mr. Walton asked another question. Rico is by definition a mechanism to go after a criminal organization. Is there any discussion bringing in transfer agents, bad prior management, et cetera, if there was collusion between them all? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so we have... Uh, Listen, my, the community here, brother, is, is on top of it. You, they're going to ask yeah. good questions. Yeah, they, these folks are the, are the real deal. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, that's a really good question. We absolutely have, we have considered um, what people are part of this enterprise, right? Um, 
and it is it's interesting there's there's obviously a lot of moving pieces to this but um rico itself it it's since it is so lethal there are some um i don't want to say hurdles but there's some there's there's something called a I would put it this way. There, there's a there's something called a culpable person requirement. Basically, there needs to be a decision maker that that you go that that could be held liable for a RICO violation on the civil side, right? So, would it be fair, for example, let's like put it this way? Would it be fair for um, a TA whose job is to transfer stock when they're told to transfer stock? Um, if they were to be able to help be, be held liable for something like Rico, because there was a mm-hmm. few of those where they transferred stock. I don't know. I'm sure there's, there's obviously arguments in both on both sides. Like, you know, how much of a, how much of a say did they have in this organization or this enterprise? Um, we've thought about absolutely bringing in um, attorneys is a big one. Um, attorneys who write the opinion letters to, to, uh, to release the stock. Right. Um, and that by that, I mean, it's kind of, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but when, when a, a lender acquires stock through a conversion, the stock's restricted because it's not registered. In order to sell it, they need to get something called a Rule 144 opinion letter that would um, basically notify the transfer agent saying, um, hey, this stock, it meets a Rule 144 exemption, so it doesn't need to be registered. You can issue it free and clear of any... Uh, any restrictions. So, which means that when the lender acquires a stock, they could sell it immediately. There are times where we've thought of bringing in the attorneys who may have a little bit more of, you know, be a little bit more in the know of kind of what's going on with the lender. Um, you know, the, the further the further you get away from the lender itself, the more attenuated they are from the wrongdoing, from the RICO, from the unlaw- unlawful debt collection. So it's kind of gets, it's, it's a little gray. Um, but that is a good question. It's, it's absolutely always something that we're considering. Um, and obviously, you know us, like if we can name somebody, we're going to do it. So <laughs> it's, it's not a question of. We, of, we uh, were about to get into uh, a little situation as well, right? This particular yeah. week, uh, I had, uh, I was, I had, you know, I, I put the bat signal up and the, the yeah. law firm was, was ready to swoop into action. But uh, I no longer seem to have that issue out, out yeah. there in the uh, social media landscape, which is, which is fine. But Funny how things work, right? Funny how things work. We'll, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. I think some folks listening and watching understand and, and know what I'm referring to, but uh, it's it's a good thing to have friends in, in good places, good places. So um, let me, let's do this, right? The, the, the idea behind this particular segment and session and, and, and category of content was really to be, and we're, taking that hashtag lunch with a lawyer, LWAL, right, was to give 45 minutes to 50 minutes of, of conversation around specific topics, ideas, and information that resonate with the community. So I want to be cognizant of, of your time and I want to be cognizant of everyone else's time as well. But let me end with this last question that was actually brought up by, by Quint. And his, his statement was, you know, how does the community work to get your message out right how do we help get your name out there for other otc companies that should be utilizing you and the services that that the firm is providing 
And I, I like his statement as well, where he says, you know, he wants to be respectful by not spamming everyone on social media. But again, how, how can the, the community be proactive in just spreading the message about what it is that the team is doing? Yeah, um, so I appreciate that, Quint, that you, know, you wanna be respectful by not by spamming us, but you can spam us all you want. We don't care, it's not a big deal. Um, we, we're really, we really do enjoy, you know, not only of, you know, Twitter as a platform for our, our, you know, marketing purposes, but like we, we do enjoy engaging with followers. It is something that is, especially for Mark as, as an, an ex CEO of a company, um, is something that he's always kind of talking about and kind of just kind of trying to wrap his head around. Like, isn't it incredible how a CEO could just kind of tweet to all the shareholders or how we could just talk to all of these people. And, and I kind of talked about it before. I want to sound like a broken record, but it's, um, it's re like, you know, the internet, is really just a, an incredibly powerful tool if you use it the right way. So I think that um, that Twitter is a is a good way to contact OTC companies. But if you are a, um, a shareholder of a company in particular, I I know it's not uncommon for even my own clients to respond to their shareholders in in emails. If you do have an email address and, and say, hey, um, I saw this on the books. I saw that you guys suffered. Or, you know, the company that we suffered, you know, if a shareholder was talking to a CEO, we, we suffered um, because of a note with this company or this fund or something like that. So, um, so I don't think email is a bad way to communicate either. Um, but Twitter has been uh, has been really good to us. And we have uh, met like a lot of great people, including you. And you know, we met through Twitter. Um, a lot of really like great support that we've always had from Twitter from a lot of people like Quinn. Um, so it is, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I think that, uh, I think that everyone does, a uh, does a lot for us and, and they do do a good job of kind of getting our name out there. And I, I really want to say thank you and I appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Was there anything in particular that you had front of mind that you wanted to continue to discuss before we wrap up this particular session? Yeah. So, um, you're saying for this session or for the next one? Well, for the, for this one in particular, we, we can't give it give them everything real, right, right. right off the bat, right? We we gotta we gotta keep feeding them and bringing them back. Yeah, um, for this one, it's really um, you know the statute of limitations issue. Uh, we've noticed so the reason why the statute of limitations kind of coming up a little bit is because two years ago it was in twenty twenty June of twenty twenty was that first broker dealer decision that kind of expose this business model, this toxic lending business model that's been around for years, for a long time. There's plenty of notes that, you know, took place were, you know, executed and fully converted more than four years ago. Um, about two years ago is when this business model was really getting called into question, like the legality of the business model on at least the broker dealer front. And now even more so on the user, you know, the usury front. So, We've seen a lot of funds who have traditionally been in this business almost exclusively with this convertible note business, kind of restructuring their deals. Um, is it different? No, it's the same thing. And, and these people are always gonna do the same thing. They're gonna structure it a little bit differently once they get caught doing it, the, you know, the way that they've always been doing yeah. it. Always how it, it'll always be this way. So, 
Um, so what I have been seeing is that there, you know, it, it's, I would, I would find it pretty uncommon if for any more convertible notes to be, to have ever been uh, executed after uh, that ADR based decision. Um, I think we spoke about this before. We had a client who had a choice of law provision amended in their, in their agreements yeah, the day. Yeah the day our base came out, right? So they're going to do anything they possibly can to kind of skirt this and protect themselves, you know? So, you know, what I really have to stress enough is, is it'd be really horrible if, you know, a company does come to us and say, Hey, I want to, I want to do something about this. And it just ends up being four years and two months outside the period, you know, wow, essentially. Yeah. So it is, uh, it is important to, you know, make sure that if something did go wrong, you, you know, you don't have forever to, to do something about it. Um, so that's something I'd, I'd, uh, I'd definitely like to emphasize. And uh, if anyone's going to take anything away from this today, it should be, should be things like that, you know, and all the, you know, the company could really, really benefit from going after uh, and trying to recover what, uh, you know, what was taken from them. Cool. Cool. CEOs and CFOs pay attention to that statement right there. Uh, Brian's got another question here. Can you explain the service process? What happens if a defendant can't be served? Also, when and how possible settlement discussions might occur once a complaint or service is rendered? Um, so first I'll do the service issue. Um, if we can't find a defendant, I mean, that's never happened to us. Hmm. Um, if we really can't find one, I guess we I, I know what traditionally the lawyers will do is they'll hire a private investigator to go track them down and, uh, and make sure that they get served. Um, I think there's also, you, there's kind of, uh, there's carve outs in the federal rules, at least that will allow kind of alternative means of service. I know you can kind of like, you might be able to, to, you know, nail, call it, uh, they call it nail service or something, but basically, you know, nailing the summons and the complaint on their door, you can leave it at their place. So, so there's some alternatives, but, um, if you can't find someone, I would imagine we'd probably hire a private investigator, but we haven't had to do that yet. Luckily, um, believe it or not, a lot of times the parties will just waive service. It's, uh, mm, okay. it's super, you know, it's not like the movies. No one's like running away from someone. <laughs> who serves them. That, that's key right there. Right. Again, because, because yeah. folks have that, that, that idea of, of someone getting you as soon as you walk out of the, out of the bathroom or yeah. something saying you've been served. No, it's not, it's yeah. not like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not that I've Sometimes. been served or anything, but. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes when I, when I ask a party to waive service, they might be like a little adversarial. You know, be like, what do you mean I'm getting sued? You know, um, but a lot of times if you know their attorney, you can reach out to their attorney, hey, do you want to accept service? And I try and keep like a civil and cordial relationship with even opposing counsel. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to achieve anything more for my clients by being mean or being, you know, an asshole. So right. I try and keep it cordial and it's, you know, they understand that I'm working here, you know, and this is, you know, I, I'm doing my job, you're doing your job. That's a. Uh, let's figure things out. And of course that helps with a lot of settlement discussions too, because I am a reasonable person. I, I do like to kind of explain a position, obviously like advocating, um, in the best way for my clients. But, um, I, uh, I don't know. I like to say get a little further with honey than you will with vinegar, right. Or something like that. But there, there it is right there, ladies, but there, there's the tag for this whole show right here. Forget uh, anything else. Get more with honey. 
than you do with vinegar. And, you know, I'll, I'll say you do your due diligence. Folks within this, <laughs> folks within this community understand when, when we say that. So appreciate that. Um, Gus, this was awesome, right? This, this was, I, I think, a good jumping off point in terms of, again, like I said at the beginning, right? We're going to fly at the 35,000 foot level. We're going to get kind of some precedents. We're going to talk what, we're going to talk how, we're going to talk why, get into a little bit of specific, but I'm glad we had some, some poignant questions from the community about some of the situations either they're seeing or they're involved in, or, you know, that they just had inquiries about. So, uh, I'm biased, but I, I thought this was great. Talk to me about what, what you thought about this particular session no, as awesome. we move forward. It was awesome. It was awesome. I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to uh, to continue this and kind of be more. Also, kind of like I'm I'm open to kind of like expanding what we talk about a little bit too. Yeah, you know, I'm excited to kind of get into more different things, especially if it's going to be a you know a once a month thing. If I don't have enough data, I'd, I'd love to kind of like hear from some of our audience and say, okay, can you talk about this? Like, uh, you know, about the Bank of America thing. Um, that's something I, you know, I think I find that interesting. And I think it's something cool we kind of have a discussion about and maybe talk about how it relates or maybe it doesn't relate to what, what I do at all or, um, you know, and just kind of have, have discussions like open discussions like that. I think it's, uh, I think it's valuable, especially for a lot of retail investors um to kind of know be in the know and kind of know what's uh what we're up to and kind of like you know the times and stay updated exactly so. exactly I mean, and th these conversations are and again I, I harp on this a lot these are above the noise level right because there's so much going on from a either social media or from a content creation and content sharing perspective that's just in my opinion noise i i want to make sure that we bring value to folks especially when they're spending that most valuable asset that they have time with us so to have you and and to have have Mark uh, peek his head in there as well was come on man you you, you can't get much better than that. Um, listen, we we're gonna I think we're gonna see each other in a couple of days, right? Let, let, let's talk about that. Uh, we might. I, I got plane tickets. I got I got hotel reservations. Uh, every time <laughs> I go to Vegas. I start chasing Vanna White, though, you know, the, the, the Wheel of Fortune. And let me let, yeah, let me let me make sure I, I say clearly what that is. I, I chased the, the Wheel of Fortune slot machine. So we are going to be there. I'm going to be there. Um, you going to be there? We uh, we might we might be there. Maybe OK, there, so. OK. Uh, we, we're going to be there uh, supporting the Dark Pulse shareholders meeting and session. I, I love it, man. When we talked about this ahead of time, I keep seeing these notices and emails and tweets from, and, and no shade, no, no, no hate to Mario Lopez and, and, uh, Fred Durst, Limp Biscuit. you know, shouts out to Limp Biscuit. I, I, I got, I got them on my, on my gym soundtrack too. And then, you know, DJ, DJ Scribble, but listen, <laughs> Gus Pazanate, Mark Basile. James Hicks, we're going to be in Vegas. We might have our own little pop-up meetup for the community. Just saying. <laughs> if anyone's near Vegas at that particular time, just saying. Hit us up. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to drop that right there. I'm going to drop that gem right there. I, I, I better go before I get in trouble. Gus, tell folks where they can get in touch with you, man, before uh, we close out and how uh, maybe what we talk about next time. Yeah, you guys can uh, reach me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are always open. I'm pretty uh, responsive. Um, shoot me an email. Email is in my Twitter bio as well. It's Gus at the Basile Law Firm. Uh, you want to give me a call. It's 516-455-1500. Uh, 
just got to ask for me. I uh, will pick up if I feel like talking and, uh, and I won't if I don't. So this guy gave his, uh, his phone number out. I don't even do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's not direct. It's not direct. So. All right. All right. There you go. It's all, it's all good. Matt, appreciate you. Appreciate the time. Appreciate the conversation to the community. I appreciate you as well. If you found some value in this, please tell someone. Uh, give us some context and some feedback for what you would like us to talk about next as well, because we are going to do this lunch with the lawyer session uh, once a month. And we've already got a couple of ideas, but again, always want to be cognizant of the community and bring stuff that you want to talk about. That being said, Gus, be good to yourself, and I will talk to you soon, my friend. All right, James. Take it easy. Thanks for having me. Be well.